Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. I came across a documentary called "I Am No Longer Gay" by Yu Bo Kim on the internet not too long ago. He was a member of the ex-gay movement in South Korea at the end of his life, but was known in the past as the first transgender man to openly cross-dress in public. He became defeated both mentally and physically after living a very disorderly life as a homosexual man. He looked miserable as he talked about his past on the documentary. All the people he considered close and loved had left his side. He lived his lonely life in a tiny studio apartment, fighting poverty and sickness. At the time when the documentary aired, he was a 75-year-old man on bed rest only and having to constantly wear a diaper. He said these words. Which demonstrated how much he regretted his past life decisions. If God gave me more time on this earth, I would tell everyone that homosexual love is not real love at all. It is only a road to destruction. I want to tell them that they need to get out of that kind of life right now. Mr. Kim only found the true meaning of life after being bedridden through sickness. He wanted to come clean about his embarrassing past and leave a message to those who are currently living a homosexual life. I felt so much heartache as I watched Mr. Kim shed a tear as he talked about how much he regretted his past. What he had to deal with at the end of his life. So horrible. The thought crossed my mind as I continued to watch his story. What if he knew ahead of time what was going to happen to him in the future with the decisions he made? Would things have changed if he made his life decisions after knowing all the consequences of his actions? Would his life have ended differently? If he knew that following his own desires and pleasures would lead to such a miserable end, where you go, I'll go; where you stay, I'll stay; when you move, I'll move; I will follow.
gospel, you can see that Jesus was very popular among the people as he was traveling around spreading his word. It is recorded that thousands of people followed Jesus as he went around preaching. But Jesus did not only speak of nice things as he was preaching. There were times when people were shocked by the things he told them. An example of this is in Luke chapter 14 verses 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The same Jesus that tells us to love one another tells us to hate our parents and family. He also tells us to hate our own lives. He tells us that we will not become one of his disciples otherwise. He is not telling us to really hate our parents and family, but is speaking to us figuratively. Jesus is telling us that we must love him so much to the point that it seems like we hate our own family. The love that we have for Jesus must greatly surpass and be incomparable to the love that we have for our parents. Jesus also tells us to carry our own cross as we follow him. We must follow him on the same road that led him to hardship, his crucifixion, and death. Who is Jesus really saying all this to? Jesus is preaching to those who are following him and actually believing that they are following in his footsteps. Jesus asks his followers if they truly believe that they are following him. He tells them about how much they must love him to really be his follower. Their love for Jesus must surpass anything else in order to become his disciple. I thought about how the disciples' faces must have looked as Jesus said these words to them. His disciples were probably worried and thinking that many people would leave Jesus' side after hearing all this. Why did Jesus not hesitate to preach such strong words to the people following him? Why did he not preach words of encouragement, but instead harsh words that would only discourage the people from following him? 
Jesus tells us his reasons for telling us all this in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 32. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The decision to follow Jesus is not a simple decision that one should make on a whim. Even when someone wants to build a tower, they would not begin without calculating the cost of completing the project. And fighting in battle leads to a problem of life and death that one must consider. If you are not confident about the battle that you are about to fight, then why would anyone fight the battle? Jesus is telling us that no one would enter a war without weighing the possibilities of life and death and considering the strength of his enemies. It is the same when we decide to follow Jesus. We need to understand what it means to follow Jesus, what the consequences are of following Jesus, what we will gain, lose, and leave behind in the process of following Jesus. We must see if what we gain at the end outweighs all the things that we will lose or leave behind, and only then can we make the decision to truly follow Jesus. Did any of you truly calculate all this before you decided to follow Jesus? Are you fully confident in your reasons for following Jesus today?
Next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Renovate, Part 2, based on Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. What's distracted you from God's kingdom with God's presence? What's captivated you this morning and distracted you from the greatness that God has for us? Does it, tell me, does, does the thing that you've settled for, does it compare to God's kingdom and His righteousness? What's caused you to lose sight of God? Yeah, I would say that little things seem big to us when we want them. You know what I'm saying? Like it's funny how something as small as an iPod could actually captivate and chain up and bind and direct the life of something as big as your soul, right? Like you dream about iPods. I'm not saying you dream about an iPod. 
Maybe yours is a, a red Ford Mustang. Right? Maybe yours is a vacation to an island somewhere. But, but we have these things that we dream about. We could just have this thing and how little we dream about God. How little we think about His house and worry ourselves about His presence and wanting to draw nearer and nearer to Him. Little things, little things. So big, those little things become that they cause God, the God of hosts, to disappear before our eyes. Little things like boyfriends or girlfriends or grades. Little things like houses, cars, and jobs. All of these little things can hide from us the immensity of who God is. What little thing in your life has blinded you to the Lord of hosts, all-powerful God today? What thing has caused you to think of God as weak or unable or unavailable? Have you forgotten God because you thought God has forgotten you? Could it be that God is maybe this morning in your life, as you are distracted, as you are looking away, crushing actively engaged in your life some little thing that has obstructed your vision from His vast power and might in your life. Could be. Doesn't feel good, but He's, he's doing it so you can see more of Him. Might hurt, yet He wants to draw you near to Him. And maybe the Holy Spirit wants you to hear from the Lord of hosts afresh today. Pray so. I hope so. I need it. But what can we do to see God again? What can we do to see God again? Third, consider the solution in verses 7 to 11. Consider the solution. You know, we are given a, a solution here in God's Word to the problem. Haggai gives him a solution. And look there in the verses and, and see what it is that he has to say to us. Haggai says, beginning in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Says it again. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Called a drought on it. So a couple of things strike me here. First, just notice that God, this great, vast, mighty, powerful God, desires to be with His people even when they don't desire to be with Him. Do you, do you see that? They have not troubled themselves to prepare a house for the Lord to come and live amongst them. And yet God says, come and, and build the house so I can be amongst you. And God says He hasn't abandoned them. He's been evicted. Their failure to obey God's voice has led to the distance that they feel. And God says the reason they haven't ever been able to have enough is because my house that lies in ruins. It's God's house that hasn't been dealt with. And so you're, you're never going to find the satisfaction that you crave. It's only to be found in my house and you're looking for it in your house. Wrong place. Not only that, verse 11, notice, or verse 10, notice he also says, 
The reason, therefore, the heavens above withheld their dew and the earth has withheld its produce. God's people presumed upon God's grace. And they, they, they believe the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. We know that from the Bible. And yet, and yet, God says, you have been withheld from because of the way that you've responded to me. You've been disobedient. It's resulted in a distance between us. See, God actually withholds His grace from His people to awaken them to Himself. They're spiritually numb. Satisfied with building tents for themselves instead of a kingdom for God. And there's a problem, right? The short-sighted, small ambition, if you ask me, and, and just maybe the consequences of their sins have caused them to look elsewhere for help. Maybe they're not looking to Yahweh anymore. Maybe they're not looking to the God of Israel. I mean, the destruction of the temple meant the topic of the temple was more an issue of shame than hope for them, right? I mean, they're looking over at where the glorious temple once stood, and now it stands in disrepair and shambles. And it's an embarrassment to the former glory of what they had been. And a reminder, a constant reminder, you have failed. You were small. You're not great like you used to be. You don't even have the money to fix it anymore. Not if you want to get the granite countertops. I mean, the destruction of the temple, it was... It was a shame for them. The temple's destruction was, catch this, a consequence of the sin of God's people neglecting Him, disobeying Him, and turning to other gods. Which seems to have resulted, their sin seems to have resulted in them neglecting Him even more. Do you see the cycle? So I've sinned, and, and there's a consequence. And so like I've, I've given up a little bit more, and I'm going to sin more to make this right. It's kind of the stupidity of sin and the way that we fall into those those, um, those, those cycles of thinking that we can get ourselves out our own way rather than by obeying God and turning to Him. Or maybe it's, it's not that. Maybe they've simply become angry or sad of the events of their lives not playing out the way they had hoped to. Because making them become spiritual nomads looking for other gods. But God's pursuing a people that aren't pursuing Him. Strikes me kind of God is this that would pursue a little remnant like that? What kind of heart does a God like that have for His people? He's not like us. He's different than us. He's not looking for what He can get out. He's relatedly committed to them. And the second thing here is, it's fascinating, it's fascinating here in verses 7 to 8 that God invites His people to consider their ways again, but notice this time, in these verses, He calls them to rebuild His house. Why? That God may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Do you see that? They've been living for their own pleasure and coming up wanting for 16 years, but God is still for them and invites them to build a house for Himself, promising that He will take pleasure in it and that His glory will once again dwell with His people. See, this glory that He is promising them is the manifest presence of God amongst the nations. The the thing that I am promising you, if you will just obey Me, is not something small that's like in your apartment, you know, in this community where nobody can see you. 
I want you to build something that is going to be visible to the nations, bringing about blessings to the world around you. You need to get a bigger vision for what God's made you for. God promises His very glory. God is telling them if they will repent, He would delight in returning His presence to them. What a promise. This had to be a welcome news to small, beaten, weak people. They were but a remnant of the former people of God at this point in history. They were the small part of the small kingdom of Judah, the leftovers. Right? Anybody here like leftovers, like more than the normal stuff? You know what I'm talking about? You've had a good dinner, like you, you take leftovers, you put them in the fridge. Is the, are the leftovers better? Okay, sometimes they do taste better, that's true. But they're usually smaller if it's really good, right? The remnant's smaller. Less impressive. Not as warm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a less impressive part. And that's what the remnant was. They, less impressive in the eyes of the world. And yet, they drew the attention of the Lord of hosts. God Almighty. And yet the Lord of hosts promises His powerful presence with this people. What in the world could be more valuable than that? I mean, if you're living in a place and you're trying to make it day in and day out and you're living for just what's before you and, and, and you're offered, hey, you know, I could give you a car, the, the job of your dreams, a dream vacation, you know, gr- great retirement. What is it you want? Like, how about this? How about the very presence of the God who made you? How about His presence amongst you day in and day out providing for you, protecting you, providing for all of your needs? Nothing better than that. See, because God isn't needy, He's happy to dwell with those who have nothing. God doesn't need anything from us. What in the world could be more valuable than what God has for us? He doesn't need anything from us. There's a response that He does call for from us. And we find that in verses 12 to the end. First, notice and consider the responses of God's remnant and the Lord of hosts. Notice the responses. Uh, first, we see God's people respond in verse 12. Look there with me. He says, get to work, build in my house. And what do they say in verse, what happens in verse 12? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. Now, the, the remnant of Israel obeyed God's voice. That's what God's people do. They obey God's voice. They hear God's voice and they obey God's voice. In fact, Jesus said that that's how you'll know His disciples. He says, my, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Now, please hear me. God's people, that they sin. First John tells us, he who says he's without sin is a liar. But we're called to repent of sin and listen to and respond to God's voice. So God's people not only sin, but God's people also respond to God's Word. And notice that they also feared God. Now what do you think that means? That they feared God? Maybe you read that and you're thinking to yourself, like, fear in the sense of some like scary movie that you've seen or something, where they're just trying to like completely wig you out. 
You know, maybe you're thinking of like some horror flick or you have uh, this picture of some great enemy that comes in and is merciless and that's the kind of fear that we feel. But that's, that's not the kind of fear that, that God's talking about here. That's not what Haggai has in mind. He's talking about a kind of fear that speaks of a type of reverence and respect and honor that anyone would have if they actually were to come as a finite creature made by God before their Creator God, standing before them as a great Lord of hosts with all power. I mean, what other response do you have but to tremble before someone that great? It's not that you're fearful that He's like against you. You're just standing in awe of the massive awesomeness of who He is. And that's exactly what it means. These people, the reason they feared is because they really saw God for who God was. And maybe today the reason that it's hard for us to understand what this word for fear means is we really haven't seen God in this way that calls us to shake to our core. God is an amazing, powerful God. There is no being like Him. We're not ready to worship before we've seen the massive awesomeness of the power of God. That's exactly what the people of Israel as a whole saw in that day. Can you imagine? A whole nation of people Seeing God as God is, worshiping God, being fearful. I long for that day. It's going to be a good day, isn't it? Jesus shows up. This is a small foreshadowing of what's coming for you and me. That could be done there. Let me just ask you this. When was the last time your world and your way of life was shaken by God? When were you actually moved and compelled by God to live for God in ways that cost you everything? Here God is calling merely for their obedience before the most powerful being in all the universe. Friend, when was the last time you were shaken by God? And let me just ask you, are you okay with that? Is that that the way that you want to approach God? All-powerful God, I'm going to leave the same as I was when I came. No, I believe that all of us, each of us, desires to be changed by that God. We want Him to make Him what He wants us to be. A people to bring glory to His name. But catch this, God promises here in this text, He promises to meet this people who have responded in obedience to Him in a mighty way. He says that if they will turn their way of life around and obey God, great things are coming. They won't be alone. Catch what he says in verses 13 to 15. Notice God's response to God's people. This is an amazing response. They obey. They fear God. Verse 13, here's what God does. He sends a prophet. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. You may have forgotten me. You may have thought I've abandoned you. You may have thought you've gotten rid of me. But catch this. I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Maybe a coward the day before. And the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Maybe having an identity crisis. And the spirit of all the remnant of the people who were hopeless. God's Spirit came upon them and changed them and moved them to be a different people than they were the day before. Do you see this? 
Did you catch that? Their obedient response was met by the Holy Spirit stirring them up to work on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They're going to work like God told them to. They're not going to work alone. They're not just working with their own efforts. The Holy Spirit is actually at work in them to do what He has commanded them to do. Isn't that incredible? When God calls us to obey Him, He doesn't call us to obey Him and leave Him alone. His Spirit meets us in our faithfulness. See, God's presence showed up, we're told here, even before the temple was built and they were done with the obedience that they had set forth to do for God. They just started. They just made that that move and the Spirit met them and worked through them. And 23 days later, they got to work. Probably lots of planning, probably lots of getting materials ready, lots of praying, worshiping. They got to work. What does this mean for us? Well, see, I think this neglect of the temple at this point or redemptive history, it, we, need to, we need to pay attention. We don't have a temple that we're called to rebuild. Now, I was recently in Jerusalem, and the Jews actually have plans to rebuild the temple. Dreams and hopes, plans to rebuild the temple, have hopes of uh, rebuilding it. They even believe they, or say they have the Ark of the Covenant that they found, right? So they've got all these plans. But friends, let me just say this. As Christians, we have something better than the temple to meet God through. See, we have Jesus, who is the Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And you'll remember that Jesus said that the temple really was a sign that was preparing for future believers something greater that was to come, the coming Christ. Jesus told us that in John 2. After Jesus cleansed the temple of all of the money changers, the Jews asked him for a sign that explained what he was doing. And he said, here's your sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Now at that point, the Jews kind of lost their minds. They were like, that's insanity. It took us 46 years to build this. How are you going to rebuild that in three days? Like nobody can do that. But we find in John 2.21 that Jesus clarifies what he meant. Saying, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of His body, the place where folks would come to meet with God and come before God in a way that came with closeness and presence and intimacy that they had never known before would come through the work of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ and being united with Christ Himself by faith. Jesus is God's ultimate word from heaven on how to draw near to God. See, Jesus came and lived a life of perfect obedience, died a sacrificial death for you and me and our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead to declare that anyone who would repent from living a way of life that was not committed to, focused on Christ, to living for Christ would be promised eternal life with God forever. And that they can now in Christ draw nearer to God than they ever could in that temple of bricks and stones. So this morning, you've got something better than a temple. You have God's Son. And He invites you to draw near to God. And that's exactly the reality that God wants to awaken us to this morning. See, God awakens His people to work with the vision of Himself. And that is Christ, the God-man, who came for us. And because He is uh, who He is, we ought to be motivated to work from Him in a way that brings glory to Him. Now, here's what that means for for you and me. Uh, I've got a few just ways that I want to close, wrap this up with application. First is, uh, if you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's not your Savior. Uh, he's not your Lord. 
I just want to encourage you this morning to, to look at the reality of what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Jesus is not just another man. He is not just another prophet. Jesus is the Son of God who came down to earth and took on flesh. He is fully God. He is fully man. And, and that is the God-man whom we must put our faith in. And if you want a spiritual uh, experience with God, there is no other place to go but through Jesus Christ. If you want to be united with God, if you want to have forgiveness with God for your sins, if you want to have right relationship with Him, the only way to have that is through putting your faith in Christ's work for you at the cross and resurrection. Friends, you must put your faith in Him if you want to have a spiritual life. It's only, it's only in Christ that God promises to send His Spirit and to seal it upon your heart so that you actually become a place where God's presence dwells. He dwells with you. That means that that's you today. You need to take that first step of faith by confessing your sins, that you are a sinner hopeless before God without forgiveness that can only be found in God's Son and what God's Son has done from you. Making a commitment to turning from living for selfish pleasures and passions and whatever else it is that you're living for to living for Jesus, God's Son, God's King. Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, 
please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount program. In our last broadcast, we studied the prayer that Jesus had given us. Jesus told us not to pray so that others can see us, but instead, he taught us how to pray. The one we pray to is God, who is our Father in heaven. Therefore, he taught us to pray for God's will on earth and in heaven. Of course, God knows what we need, but he instructed us to pray for our daily bread, for forgiveness of sins, as well as not falling into temptation from Satan. After teaching us how to pray, he also taught us about fasting. As I mentioned earlier, prayer and fasting was something that the Jewish people were committed to. Up until this point, we discussed salvation in prayer, Today, we will look at what Jesus said about fasting. Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 to 18 states, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talked about salvation, prayer, and fasting, there was a similar theme that kept coming up. This was not like the hypocrites. This is because the hypocrites act in certain ways to be praised by other people. That is why he said they have already been paid in full. This means that there were no rewards left for them from God. This is why we are told not to do things for people, but to do them in secret and only tell God what you do. Because it has been done in secret, and God will reward you. Jesus repeated this when he talked about salvation, prayer, and fasting. He also said this in the scriptures about fasting that we just read. In verse 16, Jesus talked about fasting. He said to not act as the hypocrites do, putting on a sad face. They put on a sad face to show others that they are fasting. They did not wash their faces on purpose and acted as though they were weak. God had commanded the Israelites to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, the decrees of the Lord states that the priest had to sacrifice for the sins of the people as well as for themselves. They also needed to atone the holy place, the tent of meetings, and the altar. God commanded the Israelites to afflict themselves. This meant to fast. He commanded them to fast once a year for their sins. 
However, during the time of Jesus, the Sadducees and the Pharisees fasted at least two times a week, every Monday and Thursday. Luke 18 mentions the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here the Pharisee mentioned that he fasted two times a week and gave tithe regularly. Looking at the motivation of the Pharisees, Jesus warned us not to act like them. Instead, he told us to comb our hair and wash our faces so that we look like we have the energy so that God who sees us do this in secret can reward us. Those who show off already obtain their reward, but those who do it so only God can see them will get their reward from God. When Jesus said these words, he had already fasted for 40 days in the desert. In the Bible stories that we read, there are many who had fasted individually as well as a group. There are also many of us here who believe in God and who fast as a group in church as well as on our own. In the Bible, it doesn't say that fasting is a simple matter of not eating, but it also suggests that we have to pray while fasting. If praying means looking for God and trusting only in Him, then fasting prayer means to set aside basic human needs and to focus only on God. What is something that we cannot accomplish with our own skills? What is something so big that we cannot resolve it on our own? Our sin. We cannot resolve and erase our sin on our own. When we look at what happened because of our sin, how God punished those who sinned, and let the people know of their sin through the prophets, we see them fasting and praying to God for mercy. When David took Uriah's wife and God took David's child, he fasted. When the people of Nineveh heard God's message through Jonah, they fasted. When the Babylonians were held captives, he fasted for the whole Israelite people. This does not mean we have to fast for our sins to be resolved. When we realize how bad our sins are in front of God, when we realize how useless we are when it comes to resolving it on our own, and know that only God can give us mercy, only then will we receive His mercy. During this time when we hold on and repent for forgiveness of sins, fasting and prayer will come naturally. We don't fast to be forgiven. We fast because we are leaving everything to God. The Bible also tells us to fast when we are fighting a spiritual battle, when we need Him to help us. Fasting is acknowledging that you are powerless and humbling yourself to seek God. It's not to ask God to do something for your will, nor is it to build up recognition for yourself. When you fast to seek God, it is not to seek recognition from people. This is because someone else other than God cannot be your goal. This is why those who only seek God and only want God to see them do not show that they are fasting. To comb your hair and to wash your face is not something that Jesus said as an exaggeration. A person who only wants to depend on and focus on God will not want to show others what they are doing. Let us be ones who meet God following the instructions given to us by Jesus on salvation, prayer, and fasting. Today, we discussed fasting, and in our next broadcast, we will discuss what Jesus meant when he said 
to build riches for yourself in heaven. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time as we continue our series with the Sermon on the Mount.
when we tell ourselves that we are followers of Jesus? Why do we sometimes fall, look behind, and sometimes follow the things of the world even after attending church for more than 20 or 30 years? It may be because we do not know the real worth of following in Jesus' footsteps. We may not realize how what we receive at the end is worth all the consequences that we will face along the way. It may also be because we are not fully confident in our decision to follow Jesus. We may not be confident in the calculations that we made before following Him, and that is why we lean towards the worldly things and fall. But Jesus tells us to fully calculate the cost. If you are not absolutely sure, then you must take the time now to calculate everything as you sit and pray to Jesus. What is it that I will receive at the end? And what is it that I will forfeit along the way? And you must figure out if it is worth it all at the end. When we decide to follow the path of Jesus, we are already on the road to winning the fight. If we are called by Him and we make the decision to follow Jesus, then we must not look back but trust in the fact that Jesus will be with us until we are victorious at the end. We must all have this certainty in order for us to travel along the difficult road of faith. I hope that all of us can go through the next week without wavering and fully trusting in our decision to follow Jesus. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I look forward to meeting all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. of these, the weary and the weak, and it 